Welcome to Austin New Church Podcast. My name is Stephanie Swan, and I'm the children's pastor here. If this is your first time here, we're so happy that you've decided to join us. We are a progressive faith community dedicated to the pursuit of inclusion and social justice. Whether you're a beloved out-of-towner or just catching up, please enjoy this week's message. It is so good to see you this morning. I don't know why the energy feels special today, but I wish we could freeze the clock and just all have 10 minutes with each other each. Wouldn't that be fun? No, it wouldn't be. Look at how many people are in here. You'd be here all day, and then you'd miss the F1 race, which F1 is back. Nobody's excited. Where's Jay Frills? Come on, Jay. Although y'all had a horrible weekend in Bahrain. Best I could tell, Ferrari's going to have another rotten year, so it's okay. It's okay. Trey actually made it to his very first professional soccer match last night, so we should all be very proud. No, but wait, let's do a sophisticated golf clap because soccer is so sophisticated. Let's just be like, oh, nicely done, Trey. He enjoyed it. He's like, it better not go into overtime, which it doesn't ever go into overtime unless it's a, a cup game, and he doesn't know this, right? So anyway, we, we, we love that you, got, you went green last night, Trey, so good for you. I could feel like there was some energy missing because, you know, he's like an 8.15 bedtime guy. <laughs> I can tell you stories, tell you stories about Uncle Trey. Well, welcome to ANC this morning. Some new faces. I do wish there was time to meet you all. Uh, I say this sometimes, and I mean this. Mostly I mean this, but I actually do mean this. Um, we're not as busy as you guys think we might be. So if you're new and you have some questions or some, some ideas or you just want to help bridge uh, a long jump from wherever you came from last or whatever it is you might need from us, don't ever hesitate to reach out. If it's a no, it's a no, but if it's... If it's a day when we've got some open time, it would be so delightful to get to know you. I think there are questions you deserve to ask. You know, we call this a sanctuary, which it really isn't for most people. Sanctuary would mean it feels safe. And if we've discovered anything as believers, we've discovered that it's, it's, it's a little bit rare to feel fully safe in a place like this. We're trying and we're getting there, right? So, but in order for you to feel safe unfolding the spiritual journey that you are on, you're gonna need to know me and Trey and your staff, so don't hesitate to do that. Is that a fair invitation today? How about that? There goes my week, we're gonna be busy all week. <laughs> all the people who know how to find me, they find me at radio, I'm there all the time, and it's, and it's like my church office. You know, old school church office, the pastor goes and unlocks the door and puts the bad coffee pot to on, and the bun makes coffee in like four halves of a second, which no one can ever figure out, which is also why it's terrible coffee, that's separate for you just for free today, but. Pastor goes to office, I guess, so that if people need them, they know where to go. If you need me, I'm at radio. Okay? All right. Here we go. None of that's on the notes. Neither is the word bougie this week. That's okay. That's okay. A little burning joke we have. Well, for the next few weeks, we're preparing ourselves for Easter, and we've chosen this question that we've stolen from Catherine's therapist with permission. I suppose it's not stealing. We've borrowed it. This is the question that we've that we're choosing to sort of let sit, sit gently in front of us as it pulls us towards Easter. Do you remember what it was from last week? Who do you want to be by Easter? Who do you want to be? That supposes a whole lot of agency. That supposes a whole lot of responsibility. And that, and that presupposes or sort of assumes that we are people in transition, which is why I love that sentence, that question. Who do you want to be by Easter? Now, Catherine and I both sat with this question at the last Tuesday leftover, actually it's called Sunday Leftovers, last Tuesday at radio, where else? 
where we asked ourselves, we went a little deeper into what happened here last Sunday, and if you missed last Sunday, just go back, it lives online forever. There were two turquoise chairs, and Trey said at the end, he says, you know, you were left, you were dead wood, you just could have got off stage, and that really was the truth. Um, Catherine brought something really profound as a framework for looking at Lent, so if you didn't catch it, go back and catch it. But we talked about this question in our leftover little video broadcast on Tuesday, and I'm sure there's a million ways you could answer the question, who do you want to be by Easter? But simultaneously, she and I both answered it the same way. I want to be more of myself. I don't know what you want to be. I want to be more of myself. I want to be more of the me that's emerging. That's also always who I've always been, right? But is still emerging in some way. At the end of every great pursuit, I think we should find an increased sense of ourselves where it wasn't a really great pursuit. We should discover more of us as we go. At the end of every quest we embark on wholeheartedly, Jade, that's our word, right, wholeheartedly, heaven should become more like earth and earth should become more like heaven at the end of every great pursuit. A deeper awareness of what is is always going to be the point. A better understanding of the things that are. Independent, now catch this, independent of manufacturing and manipulation. And this is where we're gonna tie it to Lent. That's a way of naming what has always bothered me about Lent, and frankly, about fasting for that matter, and also about worship and public prayer for that matter, in general. I think that we think of these things as things we must do to manufacture some kind of interest to hold God's fancy. And boy, if you're gonna spit anything out, start with that. If we think that we're doing certain things actually, by doing certain things, we're actually increasing the presence of God or the activity of God in the world, it still feels to me like God is somehow outside the world looking in, waiting for our invitation to get involved, which I don't think she, he, or they actually are. I think most of us saw the world this way initially, and I totally understand why we start there. It seems a natural place to start. There's no shame in that, but I don't see the world that way anymore. I can't. Isn't the whole world an unfolding of the very life of God? Isn't it? If it isn't, then what else is it? That could be a question you and I could have a coffee over. Now, I know how the ancients understood the world. God was in some separate plane of reality, some totally independent space, unreachable, often, if not always, angry. Right? The ancients wrote about it extensively. In fact, that's the major portion of how the world is described in our very own sacred text. It's true. I can't cover that up for you. But does it still make sense for us to segregate life and the source of life as if those two things could ever exist apart from one another? I'm sort of implying an answer there. I mean, let's just get super practical. If the kids are in the room, you guys want to hear this. We have an international space station positioned exactly where the ancients thought God would be. They were certain of it. Think about that. I guess that you figured this out when you read ancient thinking and philosophy, that God was just anything just, just out of view, just above this world, right? It would have been thought of as the heavens, and most of the time the word translated in the scriptures that we have that it comes to us as heaven. We attach a concept to it, but it was just simply a way of saying anything just out of view. Anything just beyond where we could see. That would have been the top floor of, gosh, the Lauren Hotel, practically, for ancients. Think about that. Would have been called the firmament. But here's the question I have for us. Are we still obligated to see the cosmos through an ancient dualistic frame that keeps God and the world apart? Even after Jesus? Friends, God doesn't have to be enticed or compelled, now hear me, by religious duty or pietistic manufacturing or manipulation to get involved in a material world that is literally the unfolding of the very life of God. 
No coaxing needed, no wooing needed. You hear me? I'm unplugging the bottom of Lent for you in case you can't figure this out, in case you're not tracking with me. Anyway, you know how we are here at ANC. We're going to always spin the gem to look at something from a fresh angle, and Lent is absolutely no exception. We look at everything from fresh angles, specifically from a post-evangelical, progressive angle where duty and obligation to please God no longer hold the center of our faith. It just doesn't anymore. We need a new engine, and it can't be duty and obligation. If original sin and guilt and shame and fear of judgment no longer hold the center of our devotion, then we get to ask a whole bunch of new questions. Like, for example, what does real faith get to look like now? What does human sexuality get to look like now? What does parenting and child rearing get to look like now? What does dating and partnering and marriage and breaking up and moving in and moving on, what does it all get to look like now that we've begun to parse the difference between evangelical culture and the gospel of Jesus Christ that sets all beings free? Those feel like compelling questions to me. If duty and obligation are no, are no longer the drivers, then what is? And how now do we make sense of the spiritual disciplines or the embodied practices as Catherine prefers to call them? What drives fasting? What drives prayer? What drives giving sacrificially? I guess what I'm trying to ask, friends, is what drives Lent? It simply must be more than trying to gain some kind of approval that we already have. If the ideological basis of Lent is the desire to clean up our lives so that we can better deserve to experience the risen Jesus again in 40 days from now, then nothing has changed. It's still about us manipulating the hand of God by becoming more attractive and more desirable. To which I say, nope. That's my big theological statement these days. Nope. Friend, Lent is 1,000%. Also, that's bad math, and I'm aware of that. I say that as a joke. English major, sorry, and we're going to do bad math. Lent is 1,000% not about gaining anything from God that we don't already have. And now I'm pulling on the memory threads of the last two weeks when Stan was here, pulling it through what Catherine said last week. It's not about gaining anything from God we don't already have. Now, I don't want you to mishear me. There is gain involved in focusing afresh on these embodied practices. There is. It just happens to have nothing or very little to do with God. What we gain is clarity about ourselves and greater awareness about what already is. And I trust that you can see the difference. Just promise me this, friend. Promise me you'll do your best to resist ever putting approval or God's pleasure on the list of things to be earned by your devotion. Promise me. Don't forget what Stan taught us a few weeks ago. It's actually sinful to chase those things we already possess. You can't actually chase approval. I should say, you can chase it, but you can't catch it because you already have it. You see the irony there. I guess I'm just encouraging you to keep that in mind during Lent, this great extended season of austere Christian devotion. The more I live, friend, the more I open myself to life, the more experiences that I accumulate, the more I am convinced that the entire spiritual journey is about this. It's about releasing, not gaining, not achieving. Lent is about releasing and so is life. Releasing is the secret to soul expansion, which was, as Catherine reminded us last week, happens to be nothingness encapsulated in the idea of wilderness, which is why the metaphor of Lent is always the desert or the wilderness, which interestingly enough, uh, you're going to hear in a few minutes a benediction that was written for us literally from the wilderness of West Texas, but I'll get more to that later. As Catherine also pointed out last week, and you know me, guys, I'm always in summary mode. You know, I'm going to get to it. I'll get to the text. We're still building. We're still stacking bricks for Lent. I'm, I, my intros last the length of Lent. I'll be done introing Lent when we're on to Pentecost, but 
She also pointed out last week, we have always been full, and I think this is the key concept that you have to catch. We've always been full on the inside. We were never actually really empty. Perhaps it has taken us a lifetime to find these inner resources that were always there, but we were never actually empty, even if we're just now realizing it. And this, of course, was the example of Jesus. He didn't defeat the devil friends in the wilderness because he could more effectively quote scripture. He didn't need the power or the sustenance that was being offered to him from any external source because he was already full on the inside, and therein lies the example. Now, I know that you were taught Jesus was our ultimate warrior, you know, the ripped peck Jesus in the, in the tight shorts and the sandals that were super sexy. I know that he squared up with against the devil, his arch enemy in the desert in some sort of cosmic showdown of you know, enemies and all of this thing. And I know that they wielded the sword of God against one another in some sort of mythical MMA situation. But I mean, that really only served to fuel Bible trivia competition for homeschoolers. <laughs> I don't know why they let me leave that sentence in. I should have taken that out, Tara. What was I thinking? I don't mean to offend you. Most of my kids were homeschooled too, and so was I. What can I say? But I just don't think that's what happened in the desert. As we say, this is not that if you ask me. Jesus didn't need what the devil was offering, and that's the story. So all that to say, Lent is a season in which we are invited to wake up to what already is, to what always was. It's not about manufacturing anything. It's about joining what is. So let's read our text today as we move forward. John the Beloved will be doing the honors for us now for the next several weeks. Actually, Trey speaks next week, and the week after that, I think... It's my birthday, and the week after that, I think um, Colby Martin speaks. We'll be in John for a while. So let's look at John 3. It's a bit of a lengthy passage, and college football fans, you'll have something to cheer about here in the end zone in a few minutes if you know where we're going. Verse 1, John 3, verse 1, reads this way. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, which would be a great name for a fish. I always say that. I don't know why that would be funny. If you stop laughing, I'll stop saying it, Brian. I'm just going to say, you keep laughing, and I'm just going to keep saying it. Now, there was a Pharisee named Nicodemus, a leader of the Jews, and he came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with that person. Jesus answered him, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born from above. Now, pause. That can be translated as born again, born anew, born from of old, born from the beginning, born over and over and over again, born from above, born from heaven. We just don't specifically know exactly what that turn of phrase means. Well, Nicodemus said to him, how can anyone be born after having grown old? Can one enter a second time into the mother's womb and be born? We don't know what Jesus meant in Aramaic with that little word formulation, but we sure know how Nicodemus interpreted it, right? He went in a particular direction with it. Verse five, Jesus answers, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh. What is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, how can this be? How can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? And if you hear snark there, it's because there is. Verse 11. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, yet you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you about earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? Verse 13, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the son of man. And that all makes sense until he says son of man. And we should be alerted by that. That's how Jesus often referred to himself. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, verse 14, so must the son of man be lifted up 
that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, college football fans ready, that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And I guess I'm just not super clear on how to connect this passage to the idea of Lent. So I struggle with it all week. Seriously, somebody, hopefully a diverse group of somebodies, actually sit down and decide what text to assign to what days in the church calendar. And I'm not just, I just don't understand the logic how we go from the wilderness to John 3, if I'm honest. Unless, my favorite words, unless the general idea is to understand how life works, how the cycle of existence is perpetuated, how new things come to be, you know, birth, death, rebirth as a process. Well, this is where Jesus takes this late night interview, but this is actually not the question or the observation that Nicodemus comes with, is it? Jesus isn't very easy to keep on topic often. Now, John has a way of telling stories, John the Beloved, that make his bias crystal clear. Did you ever know that about John? He doesn't even try to hide his point of view. This is the same friend of Jesus that tells us that he outran Peter in a foot race to the tomb as if that matters. The same disciple who tells us often that he is the one Jesus loved the very most. This is John. John has no hair on his tongue, as we say in Spanish. No tiene pelos en la lengua. Anybody speak Spanish in here? He just doesn't care. He's just, that's just what he's going to say. And it's easy to see what John thinks about Nicodemus here, if you look closely. It's true. John does identify him as a learned and wise man, but also as a dense and rather ignorant leader who cannot get his head around the nature of life according to Jesus' logic in this little late night conversation. And that feels like an important detail to me. I don't know if you noticed that, but Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night under the cover of darkness, the same darkness to which he would return immediately after this confusing little exchange. John's work is always revolving around these ideas of light and dark. Go back to John 1.1 and you'll see what I'm talking about. He's always talking about light and dark. John isn't actually a very big promoter of the metaphor of a kingdom of God or a kingdom of heaven. In fact, this might be the only place in the entire gospel of John that, a word that, that, that kingdom is mentioned at all in association with Jesus. That's something Catherine pointed out to me this week. The fact is, we're actually not sure if Nicodemus ever numbered himself among the out disciples of Jesus. It may have just been too risky to his social status to publicly ally himself with the likes of Jesus. Jesus was a slippery one. Jesus was a tomato seed, if you will. They just couldn't pin him down. So much later in the book of John, Nicodemus gets a mention as the defender of Jesus who, when the case comes before the Sanhedrin, he steps in in some gentle, almost passive way, basically arguing with Joseph of Arimathea. Let's kind of see what they're made of, but friends, we don't really know if these guys ever really came out of the closet as disciples. Well, at least at this point anyway, Nicodemus doesn't appear to be ready. His awareness still needed some incubation, if you will. He needed some more time in the womb of awareness. Of course, that was Jesus' metaphor here, being reborn. And of course, Nicodemus wasn't ready to see this or understand or hear this metaphor. He just couldn't do it yet. All he could hear was a literal invitation to re-enter his mother's womb, which sounds ridiculous, if not absolutely Shakespearean body, if you will. I think there may be a pattern here, though, worth pointing out. Adolescent understanding tends towards the literal, doesn't it? It takes maturity to see metaphor. Now pause. If at your Thanksgiving table you get the business from family that think you've lost your way because you see metaphor, just remember your preacher said this. It takes maturity to understand metaphor. Anyone can take words off a page and say that's the literal thing. 
But if I told you about the sun, it's not equal to the sun. Those objects are separate. There's a referent, a referent, and there's an object. That's a little extra for you there. Adolescent understanding tends towards the literal. It takes maturity to see metaphor. And whatever you do, never confuse maturity with education or even social significance. They're not always the same. You see, Nicodemus had both, and yet he walked away confused with unanswered questions. At least this is what John seems to suggest. If you put this story and the way he tells it in the wider frame of reference, I think you'll see something interesting. You see, the, the leader of the Jews, this Nicodemus, uh, he had a small but important speaking role in this story about him. If you notice, if you just underline the words that come from his mouth, he offers a statement sort of half-packaged as a question about whether or not Jesus came from God. And when Jesus refuses to stay on topic, Nicodemus says these final words before slinking back into the cover of night. You remember them, verse 9. How can these things be? He clearly didn't get it. And John, leaving this renowned religious leader to marinate in his own inability to understand the nature of life, then goes on in the very next chapter of his gospel to talk about a, a Samaritan woman found at a well who apparently instantly understood who Jesus was. And that's an insult to the religious establishment, one that John thinks is essential for his readers to remember. That's why he has these recollections recorded in this order, in this sequence. What interests me most about this passage is how Jesus describes the nature of birth and the need to engage it again and again. It comes from above, which feels counterintuitive to me. So call me Nicodemus for a moment. Think about it. Birth happens down here, doesn't it? Birth doesn't happen in heaven. It takes a human body with the uterus. It's a decidedly earthy, an earthly affair, in case you were unaware. Have you ever been present at the birth of a baby? It's messy and bloody and sweaty and earthy and heavenly in every way. Nicodemus comes to announce that he and his buddies are basically aware that Jesus is in fact special because of the miracles that he's able to perform. They were willing to concede, at least secretly under the cover of darkness, that Jesus had perhaps come from God. They were willing to admit that Jesus may even have had some divine sanction or some investiture in him from another world, to which Jesus responds, there's only one world. Life is of the earth, recurring, looping, ever repeating the process of birth, death, and rebirth right here where birth happens. Friends, life is about wombs and water and wind, which is not what Nicodemus must have expected to hear from this popular miracle slinger. It really is a huge idea, isn't it? It's also the simplest, the most organic, the most concretely knowable idea of all. And Jesus again and again makes this his main point. So I don't read this story quite the way John the Baptist must have. Nicodemus isn't a tragic figure to me. He's on his way. He's on his own journey towards deeper awareness. It's just that he may not yet have fully considered the divine nature of earthly things, which will be Jesus' point over and over and over. Nicodemus is like, hey, Jesus, so let's talk about where you come from, man. Let's discuss how you do these miracles. Let's discuss how to better fit them inside the existing religious landscape of orthodoxy and officially sanctioned signs from God. Let's harness this gift. Let's talk about power and influence and what things are appropriate to do among the crowds that adore you, Rabbi. Let's talk about heaven and eternal life and all the rest. And oh, by the way, let's keep this little conversation between us. No one can know we talked tonight. Cone of silence, okay, Jesus? To which Jesus responds, I'd rather talk about wombs and water and wind. 
I have a better idea, Nicodemus. Let's talk about the never-ending loops of life that keep all things cycling back, all things repeating, all things being born in new ways all the time from above and from below, born in fresh ways that are both past and present, earthly and divine. I think what we have here is two totally different conversations happening in the same space. It's never happened to any of us, has it? But friends, we mustn't grow impatient with this leader of his people who God so loved. His are good questions. And we mustn't grow impatient with ourselves as we reframe everything we've ever been taught. We want to know where to find God. And if she's elsewhere, we want to know who are the ones sent from God and how can we trust them and listen to them as if anyone, friend, isn't already their own unique embodiment of the life of God in the world. Friends, I don't think we need a greater greater revelation of God so much as we need a greater revelation of the natural world that carries all things divine on material wings where our sweaty hands can reach and touch and grasp and know and hold. Oh, breathe deep now, dear one. This is a lot to take in. So who do you want to be by Easter? Well, I want to be a person who better understands and accepts what is true about the world that wombs and water and wind carry all that we will ever need to fully understand and embody God. Light, darkness, heaven, earth, God's women, eternity, now, not yet. These are all things that belong together. How far apart are they actually? Oh, I hope you can see how easy it is to lose track of any remaining hard lines between earth and heaven when Jesus is kicking around. You may have to get all the way up on your tippy toes now to see what Jesus is describing, and that's okay. Nicodemus couldn't quite see it from his vantage point either. Just promise me that you'll be compassionate with yourself as you stretch to see how all things connect. Heck, it's okay if it even takes you a few decades to fully track the divine logic of wombs and water and wind. There's no, there's no rush, friend. There's no rush. Be like Nicodemus, and I mean this. Use the cover of night if that feels safest for you. Ask your questions even if they come out as in, in, in the form of statements, even if they sound like adolescent attempts to fawn this boy of God into noticing your earnest goodness. He will. He always does. And your goodness will never be the point. It's not what draws the love of God. Your devout devotion, your religious religiosity, that's never been what love celebrates, friend. You are just you, as you are. John didn't have a big spot for Nicodemus. It's obvious in the text that much feels clear, but I sure do, and so did Jesus. Did I say John didn't have a big spot for Nicodemus or Jesus? Let me get this straight. I'm gonna do a Joel Osteen. Okay, we're gonna, we're gonna splice this, do it like my old boss would do, go back up to the video room. Let me say that again. We can have that conversation over coffee too. I can tell you stories. The greatest editor ever to walk the earth, my former employer, long story. John didn't have a big spot for Nicodemus. It's obvious, that much is clear, but I do, and so did Jesus. Friends, he pushed no one away. Thank God for that. Thank you for listening to the Austin New Church Podcast. To stay connected, follow us on our Facebook and Instagram pages and head over to austinnewchurch.com where you can get added to our mailing list.
Our services are also live streamed on Facebook and YouTube on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. if you'd like to receive the full experience. We're so grateful for who you are and who you're becoming. Grace and peace be with you wherever you are.